Father, we thank you for all the possibilities of one prayer today. Thank you for all the possibilities of one life yielded. God, there is, you are unlimited in what you can do through a life that says yes to you. Lord, we are filled the day that we say yes to Christ, cleansed by his blood, filled with his spirit. We are filled with eternal potential. No matter what's happened before, no matter what is happening now, one prayer away, one surrender away, and everything changes. We change. Our ability to matter changes, to influence changes. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day we discover what it means to have the favor of God on our life. So, Father, I pray you'd prevent all distractions, all false arguments, and persuade people to come to the sweetness of the offer of eternal life. God, may they believe, may we all believe the gospel that today is the day that everything can change because of Jesus, because of your grace, because of how much you love to glorify yourself by doing extraordinary things in people who don't deserve it. Thank you that you delight in that. Here we are, Lord. Here we are, your church. Use us. Change the city. Change the world. In Jesus' name. Amen. About three years ago, a group of elders, about 12 of us, stood in the parking lot of this building. Been unoccupied for several years. It most recently was a car dealership. Prior to that was a, a retail store. In fact, one of our elders bought his wife over the jewelry section, which was to my right, your left, bought his wife her engagement ring. So I don't know if she comes in and that's good memories or bad memories for her. It's amazing, when we stood here, I had no hope that it could be anything such as it is today. I needed a group of people to believe for me. We contracted a, an architect, his name was Jonathan, and when he looked at the front of it, he said, I so hope you buy it, because I already know what the front is supposed to look like, which it does today before we even made a deal. I remember telling the newspaper as soon as we moved in, the building itself to me as a metaphor of 2 Corinthians. That's supposed to be 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. That's what the building represents to me, how God can transform lives as represented by the transformation of the building. The thing I most appreciate about the the company that Jonathan worked for and when he designed the building, it was called Equip Studios. Because we hired them to do one thing, to equip this building so that we can do what we did today. It's a cool name for an architectural firm, but I also think it would be a great name for a church. The name of our church is Equip Studios because that's what we do. Ephesians 4.11, so Christ gave himself the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people 
for works of service so the body of Christ might be built up. If you're new to the Bible, there may be, there's five terms, five leadership terms here, and they may be a little confusing to you, and I think it's worth the effort to just see God's process in raising up a church of why he had these people. So he first says the first group of gifts that he gave to the church were apostles and prophets. Apostles were sort of akin to modern-day missionaries, but more than that because they were equipped to spread the word of God quickly by the accompaniment of constant miraculous supernatural power. That was um, understood. If you were an apostle, you were a miracle-working church planter. Then prophets, they also were used to establish the church because unlike you having the privilege today of probably have five or six, maybe more copies of the Word of God at your disposal. There was no New Testament when the church was being born. So prophets were raised up by God to be within the church and to give clear vision and doctrinal direction in the middle of a service. This is what God said because it was not recorded what God said. So that's why there were apostles and prophets. And someone asked me at the end of the service last week, are you going to tell the church that you don't believe apostles and prophets are anymore? Sort of. I'm not sure they're needed anymore because the Bible says in Ephesians 2, the foundation of the church is built on the apostles and the prophets. And once you lay a foundation for a building, do you need to relay a foundation? So I think we're building on the miracle working apostles and the word giving Prophets, I think they are cousins of those in today's uh, church, but not exactly like that. Don't want to fight about it, but um, just know that I'm right. (laughs) So then in verse 11, other three leadership gifts in the church that we know are here today, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, um, evangelist, beautiful gift. I don't have it. There are people that are uniquely skilled to very clearly articulate the faith to someone with a secular mindset who's never considered the tenets of the Christian faith. It can take all the complexities of what I might talk about on Sunday morning and make it understandable that somebody has no Bible knowledge and even a negative four, five, six, negative ten hostile attitude toward Christianity. They are beautiful humans. Evangelists. They bring people in. Then there are pastors. Um, in the Greek language, pastors and teachers is hyphenated, kind of a one-gift thing, but really plays itself out in the church with two different functions. We'll say a, a teacher, well, let's just say a pastor would be, let's say a teacher would be like me. Um, well, let me tell you why it's hyphenated. In order for a teacher to effectively reach everybody in this um, room today, I have to have the ability to, to grasp large amounts of biblical theology and teach it in a way that I feel your pain. That's why it's a pastor-teacher gift. I feel pain, I feel trials, I feel temptations, but I do in such a way that I'm an effective teacher. So in every church, there would need to be those three arms. There would need to be 
evangelists to bring new people in, teachers to teach those who are coming in, and pastors or shepherds that meet the emotional and physical and spiritual needs of the church. That's sort of the outline of the leadership of the early church. And the goal of the church leadership is to serve the church by equipping believers to serve the church. In other words, that's why God gave those five, <clears throat> five gifts of leadership in order to equip you to do the actual serving of each other. I don't really know if I can say a more strategic thing in 2021. The goal of all leadership in a church is to teach you to serve you and to serve all the new people that God would bring. It would be impossible if I were to use my teaching gift to try to serve all of you, for then by way of burnout, I would be serving you and then not have the ability to serve you on Sunday. So the, my goal is to equip you to serve one another. The greatest growth area for Hope Point in 2021 is grasping this concept, I am here to be equipped to serve. Just like your Savior, we say, well, I, is that discipleship? Yep, it is. So what is discipleship? Discipleship is simply imitating the life of Christ. We agree on that? What did he do? He tells us what he did. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, mindset, I'm coming to church. Why am I here today? I could be fed. I could be taught so that I can serve the physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of people all around me. That's why I've come to church, to serve like Christ. Now, I asked the staff today, made a little mistake on this slide. Apologize for this, but I just asked the staff this week, give me some areas in which we can equip this dear congregation to serve. Ronnie, who handles first impressions from street to seat, greeting and all that, said, I could use 15 new team members, 15 places for you who are new to serve. Hunter with the band, six new team members, none of which sing horribly. So, no, six new team members, you might play, you might sing, six new people in the band. Danny V, students, could use five new team members to shepherd groups, small groups that meet at night. Laura, HP Kids, 10 new team members for children up to fifth grade. Melanie, the greedy one of the staff, especially as we go to three services. I could use 25 new people. So you sit there and say, they don't need me. you got to be kidding. And the dear one that I ran off is the guy who makes everything possible with all of these lights and the cameras and the web is Dean. He could use five. I left him off intentionally for a strategic teaching purpose. So you would hear that last. Five people, you can run a camera. 
You can punch buttons. You can learn how. And it is our job, if you would say yes, it is our job to equip you, to equip his people for works of service. That's what leaders do. It's what good leaders do. They don't do the service. They equip you. That word equip is a gorgeous word because a lot of times you just think, oh, equipping means you're going to hold a conference and teach something new. (laughs) We're crazy. We love knowledge. Love it. Give me more knowledge. I'm equipped. Nope. The word equip, in Matthew 4.21, it was said that the fishermen, Jesus' disciples, were on the shores of the Sea of Galilee repairing their nets. Same word, equipping. Repair. 1 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul says, I want to come to supply what is lacking in your faith. You need to, you're not yet complete. So when we think about Equipping, we simply think about making something more useful. Maybe not more knowledgeable, but more ready to serve. That's what it means to be equipped. I'm more ready to serve than I was last week. So, when again, how do I do that? My gift is you come in here discouraged. Maybe my job is to paint a picture using, to just let the radiance of the Bible pour out and, and see the, the beauty of Christ, his love for you, cross, resurrection, heaven to come. He's at work in all things. To, you can serve better if you're not discouraged. Or maybe you come in here today and you're addicted to something. Your body and your mind is so fascinated on sin you, you can't think of serving. You can't think of anybody else because all you're thinking about is getting out of here. I used to, there's a dear man that attends here as a great servant now, but when I first met him, he said at the end of every sermon, he was using his phone to text the drug deal that he was going to at the end of the service. He was addicted. Now he's a servant. So use the word of God to talk about the danger of sin and the satisfaction of Christ. All of those things are involved in equipping to repair you and to strengthen you so that you can serve better. I don't know of a stronger verse in the New Testament that talks about how important it is that you be about this equipping, repairing, strengthening so that you can serve one another. Titus 2, 13 and 14, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us, that's money language, spending something like his blood, spending his blood, redeem us from all, unwi- from all wickedness and to purify himself a people that are his very own, eager for what? Coming? No, to do what is good. Eager to do what is good. How important are the good works that God has called you to? So much that Christ bled for them. He's calling you to blood-bought works. You know how much it costs me to write this morning's message? Maybe 25 or 30 hours. That's, that's like not much. That's all it costs. Just sit down in front of a computer, just spend 25 or 30 hours, and boom. Then this comes out. 
Do you know how much it costs Jesus to give me this sermon? His blood. He's calling you to blood-bought works. He died to purchase your ability to serve him. When you come to church, that's what you're thinking about. I'm walking into a church for the privilege. That's what I'm doing today. I'm coming here in some way to serve. My roommate from college, now 40 years ago, is still unbelievably fit. The most, six, the, the, the most fit 60-year-old guy that I know. And prior to COVID, when he was in the gym all the time, he would walk into a gym and he would spend much of his time as young athletes would come to him and they would interrupt his training and ask him, what'd you do to get like that? You ever thought about you go to a gym not to work out, but to help somebody else work out? It's weird sounding, isn't it? That's what church is. You come here to help someone else work out. Ephesians 4.12, to equip people for works of service. So the body, not your body, so the body of Christ may be built up. The focus is not on you being built up, not you in the gym. The focus is others being built up. I hear believers all the time saying, this is why they don't come to church. Man, we're really, especially since this COVID thing has happened, we're really fine watching. Again, all respect, there are health situations. Stay when it's a health situation. But if it's not, God, you and God know who that is. You'd come. Because it's not about you being fine. I'm fine. I'm, it's about others being fine. Just think if Jesus would have approached history like that. Hey, Jesus, I think you could make a pretty big difference by starting a church on earth. Well, his answer may be so, but honestly, I'm fine. I don't have a need to start a church. I got everything I need here in heaven, hanging out with the Father and the Spirit. I'm fine. Jesus was fine, but there are a lot of people that weren't, so that's why he came to die for a church, to rise from the church, and then to send his Holy Spirit to the church, that he might use you to build up his church. The word build up, and this uh, Greek word, to, so the body of Christ may be built up, is a construction term. It is a term that describes all the pieces of a house that would come together to form the house. All the, all the two-by-fours, all the studs, and all the electrical, and all the plumbing, and it all comes together for what purpose? Not itself. Can you imagine a two-by-four laying around on the, one two-by-four laying around on the ground in the sun saying, this is unbelievable. Look at all the rest of the components having to hold up the house, and I get to stay on the grass. No, everybody comes together for the good of the house. The good of Christ's body. The church, I hear many people say, I want to mature. Man, I want to go deep with God. Man, I want to go deep with God. Here's another, hopefully, 2021. 
Um, big important statement. You mature by investing in the maturity of others. You mature by investing in the maturity of others. In 1999, Lou Holtz, a famed coach from Fighting Irish Notre Dame, surprised the sports world by coming out of retirement to coach the University of South Carolina Gamecocks. That's in 99. Now, in 98, that's what he was saying yes to, their team record was one win and 10 losses. Now, that came on the heels of seven rough seasons in the SEC. And to make matters worse, their, their 1999 schedule included eight football teams that had the previous year gone to a bowl game. Yet that's the team that he chose to come out of retirement for. Why? He, he tells us. The few talents I had were being wasted. I'm a teacher. You just feel like you're playing golf and you don't have many worries or problems. But I was too young to do that. I'm not here to prove anything, but maybe I can make a difference in their players' lives. Others-oriented. I'm here to serve. Well, how long do we think like that? How long do I, am I supposed to come to church and think about others? Well, the answer is until. And Paul answers that. He really quantifies what he means by until. To equip his people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up. Then he gives you a time frame so that you can know when you get stopped. Until, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of God. So those are three or four realities, however you want to count them. And he says, until... All. I just wanted to look it up, made sure last night, if all means all, wanted to make sure that no excited translator decided to really say we're in, we serve until all. This happens for everyone. Pantas is the word all, and sure enough there it's in the Greek New Testament. All means all. We serve until all. All of that happens for all the people God is bringing. We serve for the sake of all. There is a new spirit in the church called the idolatry of individualism. Greatest deterrent in the health and the growth and the future of the church. It probably leaked into the church in those times when, at just different seasons, we highly emphasize the importance of a personal relationship with God. And as is often the case, a good thing became a God thing, which makes it a bad thing. So this personal relationship with God became idolatrous. 
We became interested only on how am I doing? And it affected subgroups all over the church. Family, children that rather than thinking what is the good, what will be the good for my family, what will be the good for my parents, I'm just going to live how I want to live. The idolatry of individualism. I heard a wife the other day told me, quote, why her husband left her. Said, I need more me time. The idolatry of individualism. Look how Paul described the church. Until we all, we go to we church, not me church. We all, all of us. Now look what he said in 1 Corinthians 12 about the church. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. Now look what he said in the previous verse. If one part suffers, everyone suffers. If one one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Anybody want to guess what the word every is? Pontus. All. If all are sad, all are sad, all are rejoicing, all are rejoicing. We're just thinking about how others are doing. Last night, Lisa and I were riding back from Lexington, and I'm ashamed to admit this, we were searching for something on the, to listen to musically. It was late, keep us up. And we were listening to the 50th anniversary of the Osmond Brothers reunion. I'm sorry, amen. But it's true. But I do love particularly one song, Long, Long Road. All the harmonies, just a great song. The road is long with many a winding turn that leads us to who knows where. But I'm strong, strong enough to carry him. He ain't heavy. He's my brother. His welfare is of my concern. Wow. It's how you come to church thinking about all. So we think about all until three things happen. Number one, until we attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So we're thinking, I'm thinking about everyone until three things happen. Number one, until everyone attains to the measure of the fullness of Christ. What does that mean? Does it mean that Christ is not full? Like he's deficient? Something wrong with him? No. He told us in John 8, 44, can anybody prove me guilty of sin? He said that to his enemies. I would never ask that question to anybody, especially my wife. Can anybody prove me guilty of sin? Nothing deficient in Jesus. And then in Hebrews chapter 5, once made perfect That is, once he passed all of his trials and temptations and challenges, he became the source, the flowing, living water for anybody to be saved. Nothing deficient in Jesus, but so much deficient in the body of Christ, us. So, until his character, that living water, flows completely into each one of us. We continue to serve each other until we're all like Christ. 
That's when you quit serving. Until we all look like Jesus. Until his perfection, his completion affects all of us. When do you get serving, finish serving? Until we all have the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. What does it mean to have the knowledge of the Son of God? You know stuff. It's not talking about the stuff you know. It's not gnosis. That's a Greek word, gnosis, knowledge. It's epinosis, which means experiential knowledge. Gnosis is facts. Epinology is the difference between you reading about a steak tasting good in a book and you grilling out. That's epinosis. Mm. So we keep serving each other until we help each other taste that the Lord is good. True knowledge. I'll just run through these. These are always on the PowerPoint slides that are on the um, uh, sermon website every week. So I took a course years ago, many of you did too, Experiencing God, about how to experience God through serving him. Experiential knowledge. Henry Blackaby says this, seven principles. You don't have to write them down. Don't write them down. God is always at work around you. God pursues a continuing love relationship with you that is real and personal. God invites you to become involved with him in his work. God speaks by the Holy Spirit through the Bible, prayers, circumstances, and the church to reveal himself, his purposes, and his ways. Very likely you're going to find out what to do just by coming to church. God's invitation for you to work with him always leads you to a crisis of belief. I can't do that. I'm scared. That requires faith and action. You must make an adjustment in your life to join God in what he's doing. And finally, epinosis. Right here, epinosis. You come to know God by experience. Not attending another class necessarily. Experience as he accomplishes his work through you. And final, the final all. When can you quit serving? Until all. Until all what? We reach until we all reach unity. Oh my goodness. He wouldn't have written it down there if it weren't possible. So it's got to be possible. How odd that looks in a, in, in, in a world that seems increasingly impossible to achieve unity. What does Paul mean when he says unity in the faith? He means it is possible and we should aim for this, for every one of us to have a singular, laser-like focus on the supremacy and the worth and the value and the satisfaction of knowing and serving and representing Jesus Christ. And he says all of us can agree on that. Always. This is what we agree on. This is our unity right here. Every Christian agrees on this. We believe that Jesus holds all things together by the power of his word. Every piece of matter in a trillion galaxies is controlled by his voice. He is sovereign king over all the earth. Not one bird falls to the ground and not one ruler rises in power apart from his permission. He began history and he will end it. He will crush Satan and he will comfort his church. 
He will destroy this earth and create a new one. He will bring about justice for every injustice. And he will reward every word and deed done in his name. He died on a cross because only his suffering will remove guilt. He rose from the dead and promises to cleanse every sinful heart who comes to him in faith and repentance. There is no life apart from Jesus. There is no heaven apart from him. There is no hope apart from him. And there is no salvation apart from him. Therefore, the singular mission of the church is to go into all the church and share Christ with all the people. And in complete unity of mind, the church agrees there is no greater mission and no greater urgency. Therefore, all of us who have been bought with holy blood and forgiven by holy love agree we should serve Christ together with all of our heart, or as John Wesley said, do all the good you can by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. Ruby Kendrick was born Plano, Texas, January 28, 1883. She attended Scarlet Bible College and Southwestern University that she might be equipped as a missionary to serve among the Korean people. August 29th, 1907, she set sail for Korea. In June of the following year, she served those first 10 months working among poor children in a city called Chosun and teaching Sunday school. In June of the following year, 10 months after she arrived, she suffered complications from an appendicitis and she died 10 months after she arrived. Just before she died, she wrote her parents a letter, told them four things. The land is absolutely beautiful. Some children are walking 10 miles to hear the gospel. Persecution against the church is increasing. Several have been martyred recently. I'm going to bury my heart in this land. I realize this passion that I have for Chosun is not mine, but it's God's passion for Chosun. That's the last letter she wrote, but not the last word she ever spoke. On her deathbed, her last words were these. If I had a thousand lives to give, Korea should have them all. She was buried in Korea. That's her tombstone today. If I had a thousand lives to give, Korea should have them all. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that for the joy of your people today, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit that he gave from heaven into my body, you created this sermon. Never existed a week ago, blank screen, blank paper. And for the joy of your people, for their growth and for their usefulness, you have fed them. You have allowed me to be a shepherd 
and a teacher. And so now, Lord, I pray the result of these words, heavenly words, spirit-inspired words, would cause everyone to know how extraordinarily valuable their life is to Christ. To help free the addicted, to help encourage the depressed, to help evangelize those at the end of the road who've never heard of Jesus. Oh God, change our mindset that we would gladly embrace the greatest of all titles, servant of Christ. Fill us with the Spirit. Send us out from this place that we may serve one another, serve this city, serve the nation, serve the globe, serve the King, serve the least of these. Serve those who are down and out, serve those who are up and out. Serve the poor, serve the rich. Serve the educated, the uneducated. Lord, that we would serve all until all that you would bring would reach unity in the faith, maturity in the Son of God, and your character would flow and fill all of your people and all of your church everywhere. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Stand again with us.